The funny thing about stand-up comedy versus public speaking is that for stand-up comedians, public speaking could be absolutely terrifying. And for public speakers, there's nothing more terrifying in the world than stand-up comedy. And the truth is that for me, there's nothing more terrifying than being face-to-face -face with a grizzly bear whose fangs are, are bared, bear, bearing, bared, okay, with the, with the, Bears are, are definitely more scary than public speaking. But that said, this is my conversation with Brendan Kumarasamy. That's obviously not a bear. I don't do bear impressions. Maybe... I don't know. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't. And we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Brendan Kumarasamy. He's the founder of Master Talk. And it is what it sounds like. It's a great name, Master Talk. He helps you master the art of talking, the art of public speaking. Brendan, thanks for being here. Hurst, the pleasure is absolutely mine, brother. Tell us your story. How did you come to be a public speaker and not only a, a public speaker yourself, but a master of it? Yeah, absolutely, brother. So when I was in university slash college, I used to do these things called case competitions at business school. Think of it like professional sports but for nerds. So while other guys my age were like playing rugby or baseball or basketball, some other sport you probably wouldn't see me playing, I was doing presentations competitively, Hirsch, and that's how I learned how to speak. But as I got older, I started coaching a lot of the students on how to communicate ideas, mostly because the alternative they had was a rock, so they might as well have just picked me. I was the only person available. So I started helping them on how to speak. And that accidentally made me really good at coaching other people on communication. So I had the, the idea later for the YouTube channel, Master Talk, because I realized that everything I was sharing with, the, with them wasn't available for free on the internet. You know, a lot of the advice you hear is like, be yourself or get up on stage. And I thought a lot of it was nonsense. So I started posting videos and a bunch of things happened and here we are today. Now, not everybody who can speak publicly can coach. I'm always fascinated by coaching. In your case, you're taking people under your wing and you're giving them tips. What are the what are the things you look for in someone to to kind of gauge where they're at on the spectrum of being able to be a public speaker? Very sharp observation, Hirsch. I completely agree, right? It's it's a lot of people are great communicators, but very small percentage of those people know how to teach it effectively because that's a separate art. And most people who do know how to teach it effectively are usually not communication coaches. They're executives in corporations. They're presidents of states. They're politicians. They play different roles where they coach other people and they get compensated differently. But you're right. So in that context, what I would say is I've coached seven-year-olds, 70-year-olds. I've, I've done the whole gamut at this point. And I think if there's one thing I've learned the biggest lesson is that we're trying to coach all of them on the same outcome. And the outcome is simply 
convincing them that they be, they can become exceptional communicators. If they, you can convince them that it is true, because most people who hire a coach generally don't believe they can be great communicators. So if you can shatter that mindset barrier, for everyone, it's a different strategy on how to do it. For example, an exercise we can talk about today, the random word exercise. Pick a random word like phone, like giraffe, like puzzle, uh, puzzle and give a bunch of random presentations. That exercise generally serves as a momentum to say, okay, you've done this 25 times. Are you better or worse? They go, well, better. So it's like, okay, what else is possible with their communication skills? And then eventually the barrier gets broken. Have you actually worked with kids? Have you, have you worked with kids? Yeah, absolutely. Youngest is five, and I still do actually. And I'll explain why. So, so my goal with Mass Talk, yeah, sure, I coach people. I do well financial. All that stuff is great. But the main reason I started Mass Talk is how do I create knowledge that every human being on earth can learn? That's really my goal. So because of that, part of my mission forces me, the people who want to take this seriously anyways, forces me to want to, to coach kids, not for the money, but to figure out where does the fear of communication come from and how does it begin? Because if you think about five-year-old five year kids, they're not scared of communication, like a lot of them. Yeah. They, if you ask them, that is, they just go, oh, you want me to do a word? Okay. And then they just do it. But then when they start getting like 10, 11, 12 years old, you start to see a shift in their mentality around communication. So yeah, I learn, I learn a lot coaching them. I primarily coach my clients as kids. So that's how I, that's why oh, I do that to this day. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting yeah. that the, the parents want to get their kids started early. Oh yeah. Uh, similar to piano lessons. Like we teach kids piano, we teach kids instruments so that they'll have these skills later. And yet this is a skill they're absolutely going to need. It's not even an extracurricular skill. Um, Hundred percent. What was your childhood like? What, what, I was going to ask you. When did you first start talking? But <laughs> not, not that that's a bad question. It's just it's. But it. But it's an interesting one. But when did when did you first realize you had a gift for it? Is kind of a good good place. Ah, yeah, that's a good one. So there's, there's two parts to that. So the first one, childhood. We can talk about that. So I grew up in, in a city called Montreal, where I'm still based today in Canada. It's a few hours from New York City. And for those who don't know, Montreal is a city where you need to know how to speak French. So I didn't know the language, neither did my parents, but I needed to figure it out. So my parents looked at me one day and they said, look, you got to learn it. So my whole life I actually studied in French. That's how I know the language. But not only did I struggle with communication, I had to present in a language I didn't know either. So I struggled a lot saying bonjour in every presentation I was giving. So that's number one. Second challenge I have, as you can see from my arm here, I have a crooked left arm because of a surgery I had when I was two or three years old. So I had this big cast when I was in kindergarten and first grade. So it was really hard for me to make friends first. You, know, you don't know the language. you got a cast on. It's not, not very friendly. <laughs> the, the third piece you would think that a communication expert studying communications, anything but that, man. I have a bachelor's degree in accountancy. So there you go. That's my childhood in oh, a wrap. So you could you could just, just as easily have gone the other way and been a very quiet, uh, bookish type that, that just focused on your ability with numbers and your ability to do things behind the scenes, right? I, I probably still would have been an extroverted accountant. I was definitely the most vivacious because I, I, gra I graduated in the degree. So I was definitely the most exciting accountant in, in I think, the history of the, of the program probably. But you're right. The intention was never to start a business or do coaching. I didn't even know that was a, a, a profession. My, my goal was to just get out of poverty. I wasn't focused on much else until maybe three years ago. 
Yeah. Um, and when uh, when people come to you and they and they what what are some of the fears that are there different levels of fear and different types of fear that people have? Mm, love that. So definitely different types of fear, but the solution so far, though I'll have to reflect on that after because it's a fabulous question, I think for now is the same, but there might be different treatments based on your question. But let's let's roll with this. So you're right. There's different types of fear. The fear of judgment, the fear of failure are two big ones, right? The fear of success is also an important one where what happens if it becomes successful? Surprisingly, a lot of people have that as well. So based on that, my remedy is, is, is simpler in the sense that I've always believed in this idea, Hirsch, that the fear of communication never goes away. And the reason I say that is because I still have it. I don't have it as much on a podcast anymore, but if we were having lunch and Elon Musk called me and he was like, hey, dude, love your YouTube channel. You're doing really well. Can you coach me tomorrow? I'll pay you whatever you want. Just fly out to the Gigafactory. Yeah, I'd chip my pants. Yeah, probably. Right. So there's always a level, right, in which we're all scared. It's just, it's just my barometer is just higher than most people. But the barometer is still there. So for me, the remedy is simply... So once again, I need to think about what you said around the different types of fear. That's a great prompt for me to reflect on. But I think the, the key here is I think of it like a boxing match, right? One side of the ring is the fear, the anxiety, the stress. The other side of the ring is the message. Why is it important for us to share this thing? Why does it matter? And the goal is not to kill the fear. The goal is to make sure that when your message and your fear meet in the middle of that boxing match, that your message gets the knockout punch, that your message wins the match. One of the things that I, that I am always struggling with is that I have one persona when I'm alone, when I'm talking to myself or when I'm recording comedy bits in my car or whatever I might be doing. When there's no pressure, basically, when I'm completely relaxed. And then I think when I get in front of people, sometimes there's a, a desire to please, a desire to make them feel good or make them feel, uh, make them feel comfortable. And I just, I heard Bill Burr, the comedian Bill Burr, on a, <laughs> he's, he's fantastic, on, a, on an interview. Of and he was saying that sometimes comedians have to spend 10 or 15 years undoing the conditioning that they've given themselves in trying to shape a stage persona. And I thought that was a brilliant observation because I realized, yeah, I, I have going in the intention to be a little more bold, a little more outrageous sometimes than I end up being. Once you hit that stage or that mic or that lunch or that phone call with Elon Musk, you start to pull back and check and question, you know, are you, have you experienced that at all or seen that where people at the moment that they hit that, that thing, they, the, the confidence. Absolutely. Hirsch. I, I love the Bill Bird analogy. I'll need to check out that interview myself. And that's <laughs> super fascinating. I, I think in the context of what Bill is talking about, which I think is mostly in regards to stand-up comedy, I actually have a video on just stand-up comedians. I completely agree. Because in that situation, because the industry is so cutthroat and because being funny is a very it's, – it's easy to tell if somebody is funny or not. You're either funny or you're not. But if you're, if you're a, a farmer or you're an executive at a big company, it doesn't matter. 
But expertise talks are a bit different because if I'm an expert in what I do, sure, people can poke holes, but most people usually don't. They kind of just go, oh, well, he's probably right. I mean, he's an expert, uh, except for you because you're super sharp, so you're asking the right questions. <laughs> but, but in the context of comedy, you can't escape anybody. Like, you're either good or you're not. So in that situation, it, Bill is absolutely right. You actually need to be super bold. So you can stand out with your jokes and your delivery, regardless of what people think. Because if you care even slightly about your audience's judgment and all that stuff, you won't be able to deliver the joke at, on the bullseye to get the laughter and the right pacing. But what I would say is in the context of most human beings, most of us average Joes in the world, it can actually be sped up fairly quickly. I don't think it'll take 10, 15 years. I think it can be done in 10, 15 days, actually, if you just apply the right principles, because we don't need to unlearn everything. We just need to unlearn enough to get us the goal that we want to achieve in life, whether it's the next promotion or spending more time and communicating more effectively with our families. Sometimes the stakes are high like with comedy they really aren't high that's another difference between public speaking and stand-up comedy this the worst that can happen is that you bomb and of course we don't want to bomb and we want to be funny we want to get laughs but we're not in that one set of with certain exceptions interviewing for a really important job or doing an important presentation that has to be done just so one of the things i love about stand-up is you can start to bomb and deal with it, work with it, turn it around, because it's it's all your ball of clay. It's your ball of clay. You do with it what you want. When you're doing public speaking and you've been either invited to speak on a certain topic or you, uh, or you are interviewing and that's the kind of speaking you're doing, the stakes are so high. What do you tell people about who, who have serious stakes in the game, serious skin in the game, and they just don't want to fail. This is so interesting, Hirsch, because I actually think the opposite. So I think this is – you have a very strong mind, by the way. I just feel like you deserve that acknowledgement. Oh, it's very interesting. Thank you. The reason I say that is because I have a lot of respect for stand-up comedians because you say it very in a very humble way. Yeah, I mean you can bomb. You can work with it. <laughs> My god, Hirsch, stand-up comedy is tough, brother. Like you only got a mic and you better be funny. Or else people are just going to tune out because a lot of these audiences, except the ones that follow you on social and kind of buy your tickets, these guys are ruthless. Especially when yeah. you were coming up in the industry. It looks like you've been doing this for a while. So like in, especially in the early days because now you know, uh, Andrew Schultz talks a lot about this where oh, yeah. today it's a lot easier because you can create your own brand so the people who come to your shows are generally – uh, they're generally people who have already followed you. So you kind of have a really warmed up audience. Whereas in the 80s and 90s, forget that. <laughs> Andrew's right also because there are more tools at your disposal. Not only are you building an audience, not only do you have an audience that's following you from social media, let's say, or from the various platforms that you appear on, you can present content in different forms. You could do videos, you can do podcasts, you can do little snippets, you can do tweets. So... He's also reflecting on the fact that there are so many avenues to build a whole, as in a complete persona, than there are just going on stage with just just you and the mic. But it does get it does get uh, serious, I think, for people. One of the funniest scenes. Have you ever seen the movie Defending Your Life? Okay, you need to see this movie. 
Defending Your Life with Albert Brooks. He he wrote and directed it. He stars in it with Meryl Streep. It's about a guy who who dies in a car crash, and instead of going to heaven, he goes to a way station that's called Judgment City, and they judge you on your fear. And if you've overcome enough of your fears, then you get to move on to another plane, and if you haven't, you have to go back in another body. And he's so nervous and fearful. He's like the most fearful person on earth. So how is he going to pass? And they're showing clips from his life. And one of them is that he's an ad executive and he's giving a speech at a, at a conference. And they show the, the terror that's, that's in his eyes as he's, as he's on stage waiting to speak. And they introduce him and he's, and he's standing there and he, and he literally can't do it. He can't give the speech. And I never saw the kind of uh, professional stage fright thing captured so well. Just people come up to me all the time and go, I, I can't believe you do stand-up comedy. It's the scariest thing in the world. And I, and I get that and it, and it is scary. But in the main view, there are people who take classes in stand-up just to be able to speak better. Just to be able to, you know, they don't want to go up and kill necessarily. They want to be able to have good presence. So let me ask you this. Can stage presence be taught? I think so, personally, Hirsch. I, that's why I'm a, I'm a big believer, going back to why I think public speaking is actually a joke compared to stand-up comedy, which I think is a fascinating. <laughs> well, that's why I like, I like this uh, banter that we have here. I think it's an interesting, different yeah. angles that people can listen to. Is is simply because uh, you can keep doing the same presentation over and over again until it's perfect. And you, it, it's true. You could say that with jokes as well, but it's a lot longer because you have to split test all the jokes. You have to see which one works. One of the things that happened to me was I was invited to speak at a conference and I was also invited to entertain. Mm. And and I, I made a mistake of doing the entertainment thing, my standard comedy act, which I fashioned a little bit for the venue. And then the next day doing my talk, which was more like a TED talk. And what I realized was I, I did the, I did the first thing in a setting that wasn't ideal for comedy because they weren't really set up for that. So it was like a hotel bar. When they said hotel bar, I thought, Oh, that's perfect. A hotel bar is, is fine. They'll take over the hotel bar. It'll be nice. But it was a, a lobby bar. Ah, there's no lighting. There's no intimacy. It's anybody who's walking around will come in. So you, that's already not, not great. So that, that didn't go particularly well. Then, there, then there was the, um, then there was the next day where mm -hmm. I was introduced as a comedian and also for the brand stuff that I do, whatever. But the, the, the host was saying, and he's, I saw him last night. He's hysterical. He's hysterically funny. Hirsch Repoon. And then, and then it was like, well, but my presentation wasn't hysterically funny. My presentation was a talk about faithfulness and advertising and things like that. And I was like, man, I should not have, I should have picked one or the other. I should have done one or the other. Um, and, and I got firsthand experience of two terrifying situations and I will say that for me the the TED talk part was more terrifying simply because 
all I could fall back on was my presentation. So where does improvising play a role in public speaking? Absolutely. And thanks for sharing. It's really fascinating. I, I have never met a, a stand-up comedian in my life up until this moment right now that has both a stand-up routine and a keynote presentation on faithful uh, practices in the advertising world. It's very uh, fascinating. you got a fascinating life there, brother. But uh, yeah, so here, here's what I would say. I think improvisation is a good thing to practice outside of presentation settings. But when you're on the field and you're playing and someone's throwing the ball to you and you're actually giving the presentation, you can improvise some of it, but I usually don't recommend that for beginners. So what do I mean here? So here, let's start with the easy exercise that you might have learned in improv, which is called the random word exercise. So all you have to do is you take a random word like phone, screen, butterfly, wall, and through these words, instead of creating scenes in improv, which is what a lot of people do, what you do instead is you create random presentations on the spot. So if somebody gives ball, you just give a presentation about balls. If you get a eyeball, like a wall, you give a presentation on wall. And what this does is it helps you make sense out of nonsense. Because if you can do that, you can make sense out of anything. And that's how you practice improv. But in the context of what you were saying with the TED Talk, ask model, what I would have done in your shoes that I think will be helpful people and help me feed the argument as well that public speaking is easier than stand-up yeah. is that there's actually a structured way in how you can practice that's super simple that gets you immediate results. I call it jigsaw puzzles. So you know those puzzles you used to do as kids. Most of the time when we work on a puzzle, we start with the edge pieces, right? Like the corners. And the reason is because you can just find them in the box. But we don't do that in communication. We generally just shove a bunch of stuff in, you get there, and you just ramble throughout the whole thing. Wrong approach. So instead, what you can do next time that everyone else listening can do is for your presentation, just present the first two minutes 50 times until it's perfect. Do the same thing with conclusion 50 times until it's perfect, then hit the, then hit the middle, and you'll definitely do much better in, in public speaking for sure. So you're saying in terms of practice. Correct. Because the alternative way of uh, reading that would be to say, just do it 20 times in a row at the at the actual event. <laughs> and uh, by that time, they won't give a shit what comes after that. At that point, they will be so stunned. They'll just be staring at you going, did that guy? Because <laughs> repeating yourself, if you've ever heard people sometimes out of nerves, repeat sections in a in a speech sometimes they will right they'll repeat sections they'll lose their place here i'm just saying it 20 i'm literally giving you the same two minutes 20 times which 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 basically you know results in 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 nearly a half hour of of just repeating this <laughs> and then they and then they and then they're like okay something happened and then i say in conclusion and I do that 20 times. I think that would be fun. That was the first was time fun. anyone has interpreted oh, that in that way. <laughs> well, I, that's how my mind works. But I think I, but I, that's why I get so many things wrong in life. That's why I, so I make so many little miss, miss, uh, uh, miss it, what would you call it? Misinferences, wrong, wrong inferences that I, that I just get from, from somewhere. So is there a game we can play now? that we can do a little improv exercise or something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Throw me any word that I can understand. Ball. 
Okay, ball. So, so for those who are listening, this first did not give me the word ball. So now I have to create a presentation at Iftener, which I'm going to do right now. As a kid, I loved playing with different toys, puzzles, sports, but more specifically, the ball. And hold on, hold on, not the kind of balls that you're thinking about. I'm talking about tennis balls, badminton. Actually, that's not really a ball. Soccer balls, basketballs. Why? Because it's so interesting that something like a basketball could be so recognizable and play such a part in our childhood. And as we take that basketball and we try and shoot it into the hoop, sometimes we miss, sometimes we get the shot, but regardless, we learn, we progress, and we have fun. But I always like to think of balls, and specifically the ones in sports, as a right, as a destination. Because whenever we shoot that basketball, Hirsch, in the hoop of life, a lot of us don't even bother trying. Because in basketball, when we throw it and we miss, we try again. But in life, we don't do that. Or when we shoot the ball of life, we try and make decisions in our life, we often give up on the first try. So I encourage all of you to keep shooting your shot. So that's just a good example of the random works. That's great. Right. And yeah. what, what you did was, I liked how you, when you started to find that, uh, that deeper meaning, <laughs> you, got, you got even more comfortable because you knew you could see from that moment, you could see where this was going to go and you were going to do something motivational and you were going to, and that was great. It was great watching it because as a, as a writer and, and, you know, performer, we, we study those things anyway. We recognize the, the tools, you know, Absolutely. I, I, I actually meant testicles, but, but that's, that's fine. I mean, you did well, you, you took it quite literally. I would start, I would start by saying when I was, when I, and I would completely not be honest about it, but I would, I would create a completely fabricated history. And I would say, you know, as a child, my parents refused to let me play with toys. They wouldn't give me a baseball. They wouldn't give me a basketball. They said, you want to have fun, play with yourself. <laughs> so, as a result, I had to learn how to play with balls. And what that taught me was, and what that taught me two two very important lessons that I'll leave you with today. The two very important lessons are, number one, it's really something that, it's a game you should play alone or with a, with a, a consenting partner. And number two, don't start playing the game of balls in the schoolyard with other people's balls because that's not... That's not the sharing that you think it is. It's kind. It's it. It may not be. It may be what we call in in uh, in clinical psychology unwelcome sharing. So is <laughs> uh, is something we we try to avoid. So there you go. We both did a ball. We both had a ball, an improvised ball with different with different interpretations of balls, which is good. I love that. And you know that's what's <laughs> fun about the red to word exercise is you can go in any direction you want. And Go but I, what I would argue is your version is way harder. To do. I was like, man, this guy's so creative. You just went into like all of these different directions. So yeah, really. But good when stuff. you walk away, but when the person leaves, they had a more useful lesson from you and a more inspirational lesson, and they had a kind of a wacky, entertaining lesson from me. You know, but I but I think it's cool. We have a nice dynamic. It's kind of a nice. It's kind yin of a nice interplay. Yeah, it's a yin yang. Yeah. It's a nice interplay. Um, so 
if we have a few more minutes to kind of just play around and 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 but get to know each other, um, tell me a little bit about about Montreal and what what the what professional what life is like for young professionals in Montreal people who are starting out what are what are the industries you come across what kind of personalities do you come across I'm just always interested to learn I would say Montreal think of it like the Canadian city with a European undertone so what does that mean so Toronto is a lot more like New York you know, everyone's kind of bustling and running to the next person. They're not very nice either. Whereas in, in Montreal, it's it's very relaxing. So people still work hard, but they also get picnics at lunch over the summer. You know, we're still we're still competitive, but we also know how to enjoy life. So it's that it's that balance between both worlds is the way I would describe Montreal. In terms of the 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 young professional scene, a lot of the jobs mostly here are probably around aerospace is a big industry here because we have like Bombardier, a lot of those companies here that are centered in, in the province of Quebec. That's one. Uh, consulting is really big as well. Technology companies, a lot of startups in Montreal as well. And the third one's probably financial services. A lot of banks here, at like like most cities. And uh, yeah, but yeah, it's a great wife. It's a place I haven't been yet. And I had a, I had a very good friend from Montreal when I was a kid and I will... Never forget the the joke. He he used to love my jokes, but he loved telling jokes. And he told me this this joke, which only works, I think, if if you're from Canada. I don't know if it. I don't know if it, if you would get it. The other and you might have heard it. So the so the joke is these this guy's at a gas station, and he sees someone pull up in a Rolls Royce, and they're filling their tank. The chauffeur is filling their tank, and he. And the the, the uh, attendant, the gas station attendant, waves to the guy. Obviously, he knows the guy in the back. He waves to the to the guy. The guy rolls down the window, and waves back. So the guy filling his tank goes, "Who who is that?" And he says, uh, "Oh, uh, that's that's Mr. Johnson. You know, he he works for he works for Canard, right?" And the and the guy watching him says, "Well, I work fucking hard too. I don't have a Rolls Royce." You know what canard is? Oh, you mean canard, like duck in uh, French? Oh, you pronounce it differently. The can- yeah, it's a it's a cruise line. Oh, canard, right? C u n a r d, I think. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know it was a cruise line though. That's interesting. Or it, it's a cruise line. Yeah. See. Well, anyway, it's an old joke. But the but the but the see, I bombed the one joke I bombed today. No, no, no. <laughs> it's good, man. Joke. You got it. <laughs> but, but. But the but the play on words always stuck with me because I thought, oh, that is funny. I work. He works for Canard, and he goes, "Well, I work fucking hard too. I don't have a." <laughs> so that's the joke. I'm leaving that one in. If they, anybody who's listening doesn't like it, they can go fuck themselves. <laughs> you know, because if we can't have some some good, well intended failure on this show, then what are we what are we doing? The the reason I asked about about Canada also is. You know, it, for a long time, American culture was in many ways the envy of, of Canada. People in the entertainment industry who came from Canada would, would look at American entertainment as a bellwether of what they, would, what they would like to accomplish. And now America culturally seems like we're going through so many an identity crisis of sorts. A lot of people in the United States look to Canada and go, ooh, I, maybe, I should, maybe I should move to 
to Canada, you know, and I know so little about it. Have you have you spent a lot of time in uh, in the states? Oh yeah, where are you based, by the way, Hirsch? Where are you I'm in right based now? in Iowa City. Like I grew up in Miami, went to school in New York, settled in L.A., and then took this kind of detour for five six years here to Iowa City, and it's wonderful. But there are times where I'm like, oh, I should get the first plane to Montreal, go hang out with Brendan. And just, you know, take him to do some stand-up. Have you ever done stand-up? Uh, no. I So the, the closest thing I've done to stand-up, I've done improv before, though. The closest thing I've done to stand-up is I, I pull up, this is something I do with my advanced people. I pull up, like, uh, scripts from other stand-up comedians, and we emulate them. Emulate them. So, like, uh, Louis C.K., who else did I have? Iglesias. So I'm, I'm a big, like, stand-up nut. So I listen to a lot of stand-up okay. comedy. But I, I mostly do their bits. I, I've done some, but not, not on a stage or anything. I should, though. Well, you start out doing the bits of the people you admire. We all did that. When I was a kid, I was listening to Steve Martin and uh, George Carlin. And oh, all yeah. That, all that stuff. Robin Williams. And of course. watch everybody. And... But then eventually you start hopefully doing your own jokes. But you should try it. You should try it because it'll it'll add something to what you already do so well, to what you already do with people and so what so if people want to find you right now, what's going on? Are there do you do seminars? Do you do uh do you do some any kind of live events that people could participate in or virtual events? For sure, man. Well first of all, it's so great talking to you, Hirsch. I learned so much from this conversation. You're a very wise man. Wise man. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I've had a lot to think about. It's like, oh, different types of fear. Maybe there's different antidotes there. I have to, I have to chew on that one for a little bit. Yeah. So that was really good. But yeah, absolutely. So two easy ways to, to keep in touch. The first one is definitely the YouTube channel. Just go to Master Talk in one word. You'll have access to hundreds of free videos. And the second way is, yeah, I do a virtual seminar every three weeks. That's free. So I do one on communication. And you can register for that at rockstarcommunicator.com. Awesome. Well, I hope people find you. I'm certainly excited to have met you, Brendan. Likewise, and, um, and I look forward to having you on again at some point. Uh, the only caveat is you have to have performed stand-up comedy once. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I, I, to, I forgot to tell you. You know, when I was 12, my dream was actually to be a stand-up comedian. That was actually wow. my, my initial goal. But I, the reason I changed my mind was I never told this story on a podcast before. So it was like 2000. When, I, when was I 12? 2008, 2009. And I was watching. Do you know what MTV Cribs is? You remember that show? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, so there was an episode of my hero. Like my, the, my favorite stand comedian of all time is Russell Peters, right? He's like the oh. kind of my – I've watched all of his bits. Like everything is just a genius. And he, he was the kind of the, the, the episode – and then I remember in one scene, he walked into a room showing his house and everything he was doing. And then he opened this drawer and all of it was pornography, like all of it, just tapes and tapes and tapes. And he's gotten divorced like two, three times at this point. And I just looked at his life and I said, you know what? I don't think I should be doing this in my life. <laughs> so, so I ended up changing my mind. He, I hope he knows that. I hope he. I hope he. I hope that's gotten back to him that you. That he dissuaded you. His porn collection dissuaded you from doing stand up. Yeah. But but that that is an interesting point 
to to close on, which is that we often idealize situations, and when we see something that we didn't we didn't know about a, a, a certain profession, it challenges that fantasy. It tests that goal. So maybe maybe it was a good thing. What it really did was it just it wasn't. You looked at the comedians and you were like, yeah, that looks like a great life. But it probably isn't the life that you would want. So, so good. You know, that gets rid of our, our bitterness about anything that happens that we didn't, you know, we, we may be a little bit envious sometimes. But if we want a certain life, we should just choose it and go after it. I wouldn't want the porn drawer either. So, you know, <laughs> the way I look at it, I'm a more successful comedian than Russell because I... I've gotten all I've gotten all this way with no porn drawer. So I, I I think you're more successful than Russell because you give keynotes on advertising. Yeah, and he doesn't. He doesn't. <laughs> Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five star review and share this podcast with your friends. <laughs>